0: I've been looking for you for eight months. Whenever I should have had a gun in my right hand, I thought of you. Now I find you in exactly the position that suits me. I had lots of time to learn how to shoot with my left. <laughs> When you have to shoot, shoot, don't talk. Holy shit, Tom!
1: <laughs> what episode fifty? That. We're here. I know, I know. We did it. This is pivotal film. Um, I'm Tom Nolan still after I'm, fifty episodes. I'm slowly becoming something else. It's transforming. Way. Yeah, yeah. Like a Tommyknocker.
0: Tommyknockers transform. They're just cats, right? Uh, yeah.
1: We're no. I, we have to save that the Tommyknocker conversation for a couple of weeks so from now.
0: I'm Mario Ponzio. And apparently, according to the Variety, Matrix 4 is a go.
1: Oh, man. Yeah,
0: four hours ago. Break that news. Somebody texted me about is, that. Is Keanu Somebody in? Te- Keanu's, Keanu's in. Carrie Ann Moss is in. I need to expand this to look at it. Carrie Ann Moss is in. And uh, Lana Wachowski. I, is the other Wachowski not going to be doing it? I don't know. I don't care no about... No Lawrence Fishburne, though? I don't care about Matrix. No, he's too busy doing those John Wick movies. Like Keanu's like, no, I'm in... John Wick. You can, you can, and then Lawrence is like, I can't. I think do I work.
1: am John Wick. Yeah. No, even no, though I'm not my, it's my character's name, I'm pretty sure that I'm John. Actually, Wick. It does not. No. It's well, just, that's one too of bad. the Wachowski sisters.
0: Um, do they go by sisters or siblings? I don't know. I don't know. Siblings are sisters, however they prefer. Um, and, and Keanu Reeves and Carrie Moss. But anyways, somebody texted me about that. And to be honest, I don't give a shit. Well, I'm glad we're going. I'm glad Matrix. we
1: continue to go backwards in 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 film culture and we're going to have another I'm little women I'm adaptation the, and we're going to have yeah. another Matrix movie and
0: We got the no time to die announcement for the James Bond movie.
1: Ugh. I'm sure that's going to be okay. There's no time to die. Like he just doesn't have time. He's just got too many things to do. That's what's going to happen. Rami Malek's going to be like
0: Is going to be his doctor and be like, "You are suffering badly," and he's
1: like, "You're the villain in this movie. You
0: have to die." Yeah,
1: you have. I don't. I just don't have time. I got things. You have
0: a serious aneurysm going on. You have tremendous amounts of cancer. You (laughs) are going to be living a miserable experience.
1: It's the transition from the James Bond franchise into the uh, Neil Gaiman Sandman franchise, where he just chooses not to die. And then Dream comes in at the end, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and the whole thing just, you know, is a big mess. But, uh, yeah, that's exciting. It's exciting for this new, this new IP crossover that they've developed.
0: But more exciting is, uh, apparently, Andy, uh, director of IT, yeah. I'm not going to try to say his last name, is going to be doing something to combine the two parts. So we might be getting a theatrical release of uh, both parts combined. That makes sense. After
1: it, Good. Two. Good. Good. I'm a lot, a lot of
0: film news. I don't know why we're doing film news. Because this is an exciting day. We're a trying day to distract ourselves from the, all the hard 50. work we have to do. Episode 50.
1: Yeah. And so I guess for we, sh- we needed a special beer for episode 50. This beer comes all the way from uh, Albany, New York. It's Druthers Brewing Company. This is their all-in IPA. Oh, like Cody Rhodes made this beer. I don't know what that means. That's a wrestling joke.
0: Oh, okay. The first pay-per-view of what would become AEW, the big competitor now to WWE, ah, was called All In. Excellent. Their upcoming pay-per-view is All Out. hmm One year. So it's
1: right. just, that's the end? All In and then All Out?
0: No, I think, I don't know, maybe they're just going to come up with different, like, fun ways of saying it. Their second pay-per-view is called Double or Nothing, yeah. then they just kind of, lo- then they just call themselves Spider Fest and Fight for the Fallen.
1: Well, that's stupid. Um, let's open this. Let's burn WWE. Uh, so this is the last beer they from... taking Saudi blood money. <laughs> okay. This is the last beer from the series of what was in Tom's Fridge. I went to Lake what? George, and, uh, and, I, and I drank a bunch of this, and I was telling Mario about it. It's, it's not rewriting uh, the, the history of the IPA, but I, I found it to be a supremely enjoyable, workman-like, steady, steady beer. However, it is recreating the wheel. I don't, I don't think it is.
0: No, it actually says on here. It gives directions to how to create a better wheel. <laughs> Let's uh, dink this. I like I like the sound of dinking glass. I drank that weird. Yeah, it's not reinventing the wheel because it doesn't have a tremendous amount of flavor. I I do have a sea hag on the side that isn't isn't helping. The fact that sea hags that hot bomb and this is a.
1: I don't know. It's good. I, a I, six, I'm 6. shocked this 5. is a 6.5. This really, is a 6.5. Perhaps one of the reasons 2. I really like it is because I'm going to drink all three of my beers from this six-pack in like 40 minutes because it is... That's, that's a bad idea. We is, have a lot of podcasts. Here it before. is warm up here and this is cold and this is the kind of thing you want to drink. This yeah, is the kind of IPA that you want to drink on like a really good. hot it's, day. It's,
0: it's, like a, it's, it's bad in the sense of um, it is very crushable. Because it's just as it has a nice, like, slight malt flavor, mm-hmm. uh, not no no extreme hoppiness, so it doesn't like pucker the lips, it does pucker the lips, pucker the tongue, pucker it the lips, pucker the lips. It doesn't, <laughs> you know, do a lot to you. It just it, it, it feels like it's hydrating, it's there. Um, I mean, it's it, a good, it's a good hot weather beer, yeah, but it's a bad hot weather beer because it is a 6.5, and you could accidentally drink like six of these and be like, well. My yeah. Thursday's ruined especially, and it is Monday. Especially in front of a bonfire or you know, Speaking some what, such thing. Have you, have you gotten older? Has you've gotten older. Yeah. I mean you you, you have, have all, gotten older. We've all mm-hmm. gotten older. Have you noticed that your hangovers, if you have
1: those still, uh-huh. are
0: accompanied by like anxiety?
1: Um, I don't really get hungover because I don't really drink that much beer. Ah. So I don't go I don't I usually don't go past four. Because I usually have to drive someplace else.
0: Oh, yeah. it's that's the problem. The Pivotal Film Studios, I do sleep under the couch. Yeah, so you're allowed... Not on the couch. I sleep under the couch.
1: Tom has, has... cooler under there. Tom
0: has given a strict no sleeping on the couch policy.
1: Actually, Tom owns the Pivotal <laughs> Film Studios, and I just live in them. Mm-hmm. I just don't want you to mess up the couch. It's a good couch. And I want you to, like, kick the arms off with your violent sleep, sleep fighting.
0: Well, because I bent, I, you know, my leg pressed so much that it'd be easy for me to do. It is... Yeah. Watch, your, watch your foot sports. Speaking boards. about kicking or punching or putting dents in the <laughs> car doors, yeah. extremely violent dents in car doors. Uh-huh. Such a small man, it creates such a large dent. Yeah. We saw a, a film finally. Well, Tom saw it about three years ago, and I saw it uh, Sunday. <laughs> oh, you want me to say the film? It's a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. All right, what's
1: the matter, partner?
0: It's official, old buddy.
1: And it has been.
0: Here I am, flat on my ass. And who, who I got living next door to me?
1: I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play
0: Miss Carlson, the klutz. Oh. <laughs> Charlie's gonna dig you.
1: And that gospel grew: oh. I could taste that Neil Diamond. I could mm. taste that hot August night up here in the pivotal film studios. It also mean. tastes a lot like the sweat and beer mixing with my beard. <laughs> Neil Diamond tastes like malt and saline. Hmm a good taste. That's a good taste.: um, Better than Tom Jones. Much better than Tom Jones. Oh my god, way better than Tom Jones. Tom Jones tastes like you-
0: blueberries and Foot Locker. La- like, like the, the store uniform, the uniform. Oh
1: the the, the pinstripe. The right pinstripe right, he right. tastes like that. Yeah. That's an interesting taste, yeah. Mm. Neil Diamond definitely tastes better than that. Um uh, the year's nineteen sixty nine, uh, February, where it's probably cooler. No, oh, it's definitely <laughs> it's definitely cooler.
0: Guys, it's it's hot in the Pivotal Film Studio. Yeah,
1: yeah, we are we are roughing it today. Um Rick Dalton lives in Los Angeles. He used to be a, a star of a, the hit TV show, Bounty Law, but over the last ten years or so, he's been he's been going down and down. And now he he's he kind of taken a, feels like a, a, a you know,
0: adverse um, detour from like the Steve McQueen path. Like Steve McQueen, yeah. wanted dead or alive in the late fifties, then would you know go on to to be become Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen and just love up asbestos. Um, <laughs> I can, make, I can make jokes about Steve McQueen's death now. It's been like 20 years, right? You That's can make fine. asbestos jokes, yeah. Okay, yeah. Asbestos, guys, not a good idea. But, you know, it's it's basically a Steve McQueen had just a, you know, not had bullet
1: or well, it's interesting anything because to fall back really, on. Really, he's still working. He's been working continuously. He's just not, it's just not the same thing. You know what I mean? He's in, also, what, man, Damien Lewis does not look like Steve McQueen. <laughs> Damien Lewis looks like he has lived hard tough life as Steve McQueen. It looks like Dave mean lewis have been living as have Steve you, McQueen for like 20 years and it's been difficult. be fair difficult. Though, if you
0: look at like, you look at Steve McQueen in Bullet and Steve McQueen's like almost 40, maybe mm-hmm. not even 40 yet, that man looked fucked up. Like he, he yeah, had, I was watching a couple episodes of Warner Dead Alive my dad uh, this week and I was like, man, Steve McQueen like in his mid-30s when he did this? I looked
1: it up, he was 28. <laughs> It's it's like he he wasn't, drank. He wasn't growing skin hair yeah, out of that's <laughs> out of his head. Well, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe he was. Special effects weren't good enough then. Um, right then. When we meet Rick, uh, you know he's he's meeting with his uh, new agent, played by Al Pacino, um, and they're discussing going to Italy to do some some Western movies because Rick has kind of been pigeonholed as as the villain now, and then he's just going to kind of be swept out of the industry fairly soon. Um, Rick has some dependents, specifically uh, Cliff Booth, his stunt double, played by by Brad Pitt. He lives next door to Sharon Tate, uh, unfortunately for him, and is kind of digging it in. Um, and, you know, things aren't going well for Rick. He hates hippies, but there's hippies everywhere. Um, he's crying all the time. He's getting lessons in acting from little girls. Um, and then on... Underneath all this is a bubbling cauldron of, of, of seething wickedness manifested in the in the Manson family. Oh, the guys that wrote all those rest,
0: songs. Those, 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 I them, heard a song. Yeah, it was Dennis like, I think Wilson. Sist- System the of Music. a Down did a, a, a Charles Manson song. Everyone
1: does Charles Manson songs now. It's become really cool. You're a really cool musician if you play cover Charles well, Manson they, songs. They did them in, in the late '90s. Like, they were the hipster. Was he still alive then?
0: Yeah, he didn't. He just died.
1: Charles Manson just died like two years ago. It was oh, good for him. So he got to experience some of his success later in life. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Um, and that's kind of where the movie drops us until the end of the movie. It's a kind of takes place over the course of like two or three days, essentially. Even though like eight months pass between like the or six months from the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie, like there's a six month gap there. Um, and then. Everything goes crazy. This movie is directed by Quentin Tarantino. It was written by Quentin Tarantino. It's his ninth feature film. Apparently there's only one more Quentin Tarantino movie left. And it's going to be a, a horror movie. As, um, as which as will as, be great. Uh, you like, know, yeah, maybe. Fantasy horror movie? I don't I don't know. I'm not sure what what he could do in a horror movie that he hasn't already done in just a regular movie. I mean, it's going to have to be something historical. That he can like, like change the time. That, <laughs> just so, change history up again. Um... Yeah, so I saw this a long time ago. You just—I believe saw it. you saw it in 1907. Maybe, yeah. So I think that's where the next Quentin Tarantino movie is
0: taking place. Um, he's, he's making a prequel to 1917. Good for him. Him and Sam Mendes are teaming up. 1916. <laughs> Haha. it'd be good. Price is writing that
1: motherfucker. Let me let me hear some let me hear some Mario thoughts here.
0: Yeah. So the problem with this movie, it is it, it receives the, the worst. Possible rating that Mario can give a film, which is it's fine. Mm -hmm. It's funny at parts. It's has some really solid acting, but overall it's 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 marred down for me by a lot of lingering, uh, a lot of kind of tonal inconsistency. um, You know, between as you said, kind of Rick Dalton's. Career trajectory imploding and reinventing Slash existential itself. crisis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. With with this 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 you know the the real life tension and the real life crisis uh, and anxiety that would be like the the Manson family, um, and kind of intercutting that and inter- interposing that on top of one another. You get you get a real sense of speed speed up and slow down. Which yes. Is, which is plagued, I noticed that also. Which is badly plagued. I think Tarantino's. Like last his last film, especially like hatefully, and I think he avoids it in Django Unchained because that interspersing stories uh you know the stories of, of chasing down the brothers mm-hmm. leading into um, getting Django's wife back is kind of like one after another. Mm-hmm. Interspersing it here, you. Get, but those those two stories and by themselves pe- kind of like move at kind of well, and it's presented pace. as episodic. Yeah, exactly. So
1: it's not it's, it, the episodes are feel um, they don't have to feel totally aligned to one another because you're no. moving from one thing to another thing
0: to another thing. War has this is is kind of blends in with one another, and, and so you have these scenes, these really great, not great, they're, these really interesting scenes of tension. Um, in the Manson dynamic like when you know uh Booth goes to uh the spa, the spawn ranch uh-huh. um you know it's a, it's really nice kind of like somehow you know fanning des- decided to be a decent actress for once yeah. um and it's a really cleverly done built scene of tension but that's interspersed with like scenes where everything completely slows down mm-hmm. and and I think overall the, the Manson stuff was boring to me too like it doesn't i'm so much more invested in like rick dalton's existential yeah crisis me too because the Capra destroys like destroys oh his my god he's so oh. good like that that part in lancer where he's oh <laughs> you can't, man you can't remember his lines and goes back to his trailer that's a really well edited scene you know just intercutting mm-hmm. like his breakdown hey fucking whiskey sours you could stop after four <laughs> You know, and it's just so... Well, I even think the scene so right before good.
1: that, when he can't remember his lines, like, yeah. is really... So, like, it's the tension of the Spawn Ranch layered. kind of juxtaposed with the tension of the fact that, like, he's sitting there on set, you know, hung over his shit, and he can't remember his fucking lines. And, and, but it's
0: it's nice because, you know, it is, it is such a layered performance. It, it does oh,
1: feel like... it's as, I It mean, feels
0: it's, like somebody who is having difficulty remembering his lines, while also trying to still act as this outlaw... You know, and that, you know, while still, just as a hippie, just as a hippie, while still being Larry DiCaprio, um, and contrast that with kind of the easy tension that comes from the Manson stuff, um, it doesn't live up to the complexity of, of Dalton's kind of like yeah. crisis. Like, I find, I, I'm not going to do this as Chris as a Brad Pitt. I think Brad Pitt's not given, I mean, a lot of people loved him in this, and I don't think he's given a lot. Tremendously to work for in terms of dimensionality. What he does is fun. He has a lot of he has a shit ton of charisma. Yeah. In this, um, but to the same extent, is everything he's doing doesn't have the same amount of facets or sort of the, the same degree of of, of dimensionality yeah, that I, Dalton stuff does. So it, it kind of pales in comparison. This is kind of a, a movie of two halves in the sense that one half is a really fascinating kind of investigation of an actor who was propelling himself somewhere and exists in a world where young actors who had followed the same trajectory had then made something of himself. And he's just, you know, through his own self-destruction and through happenstance, mm-hmm. kind of like fallen to the wayside. Yep. Um, yeah. That's a really interesting story. That's like the kind of true once upon a time, like the Hollywood story contrasted with like this, this historical event that, you know, is, is Timestamp on the history of Los Angeles, Um, or I mean America
1: in a way, but to a degree, yeah.
0: But at the same time, is so easy to kind of like control the narrative, yeah. um, That it's just not. It it, it, every time we settle into this Manson stuff, I want to get back to Dalton. Yeah, I don't care, and like it, it, it. Doesn't work on that level for me. So I find this really great movie with this, like, hour of fat just, like, dumped on top of it. And I cannot even really justify, besides this kind of, like, investigation of the complexities or or the overall kind of world of 1969 Los Angeles, I can't justify this Manson stuff even existing in it just for the sake of it existing. It doesn't do anything to Dalton's story he doesn't need it doesn't even need to really be there to an extreme extent like like you can get degrees of it touches of it but you don't need to have such a you know pinpoint exact large narrative there to reach that same kind of level Mm -hmm. of uh, character complexity
1: it's interesting I mean that's the first time I've heard that take and I think part hot of hot take, hot take, bam. I think part of the problem I'm having with this movie is that like I really don't know how I feel about it. I really like it. I enjoyed the shit out of watching it, but I'm not sure what I'm not. I'm not sure what Tarantino intended in anything that he was doing. So I think there's an element of. So I was listening to the uh, Bill Simmons was talking to Wesley Morris from the New York Times on on his podcast about was just about this movie, and Wesley Morris was saying that like the unsayable thing is that like he went into the movie expecting to see Quentin Tarantino kill Sharon Tate and I admit that I also went into this movie expecting because I didn't read any reviews or anything like that I knew that there was well, an went, alternate, alternate uh, history thing I expected somebody to kill Sharon Tate I actually thought it was going to be Cliff so I went into it expecting
0: like Charles like the entire Manson like I expected like Charles Manson to be like slowly dissected I expected him to receive so you, you know, thought it was going like, to be the extreme
1: a spear to the neck did you actually? I know, I know, I understand. We'll get to that later. Did you actually expect them to kill Charlie? Yes, yeah, yeah, did. Okay. Did. did. And so that's it. the other. So that's the other. I, mean, I didn't.
0: I didn't read anything about. I'll, all I knew about this was some of the controversy surrounding it going into sure, it. Sure. I, I, I tried to stay, you know, blank slate. But
1: I think it's it's a, it's a reasonable a real expectation. Real Paul after Giamatti they blank hit. check. No, after check. That's that's the. Never mind. No, he is a blank check. Is he? Yeah, the Freddie Muniz movie.
0: Oh, is he? Or right? Frankie Muniz? Yeah, I thought he he's in the
1: other one with the uh, blue paint. Oh, no, yeah, what is... Nah, yeah. Maybe it's in both of them. Maybe. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> I know what you're saying. That's not the... that's not blank check? What is that movie? All right, doesn't matter. Um, so I expected someone was killing Sharon Tate. That's just what I thought. And I think a lot of the tension from the movie that gets released at the, at the, like, at the end... Big Fat Liar. Big Fat Liar, yes. Um comes from the fact that we don't we're not gonna have to sit through sharon tate and her baby being killed um so we're happy about that so when brad pitt goes to town on three teenage manson acolytes it's very satisfying my hawk escapes yeah my hawk she just just runs around which is very funny um and there's like there is there is like
0: it's it's not that's so, not satisfying to me though. Like in the sense that I'm Okay. It's satisfying so I, because you know, what it's, I find, what I find satisfying for me is so when they drive up, you know, you know, Tex Watson and all that's kind of leading this, this charge of like you know, Charlie told us to kill whoever's there yep. and like really feeding into that, that Manson manifesto. Mhm. And then um who is it? It's uh, the the one girl. Coming. Yeah. Like um after they see after Rick like, yells at them. Is in it his, Susan? Does uh, it act Susan Atkins? I can't remember if Susan Atkins or anyone... off the top of my head just kinda of goes, you know, off on this kind of like hippie diatribe. But and only after Rick Dalton
1: into... accosts them in their car wearing a kimono and hanging and carrying a uh, a picture of, of margaritas yeah, in his hands. Exactly. But like, you know
0: like that was cathartic to me as like this like demanifesting the um the aura or, or the effortless or the, you know, the, the, the caricature that is the Mansons of like this really well collected cult. And instead of making it just a bunch of fucking idiot hippies. Yeah. And what I, and, and I had the same problem with Inglorious bastards. It's, you know, alternate history stuff is, I, mean, I don't have a problem. Like, Oh, you don't present history completely differently, but it's just, it's, it's, I, I understand the attempt at catharsis or whatever. Um,
1: but it's lazy to an extent. Yeah, but that's only if you're looking for catharsis. So if you're just looking for fun, I think it's fine because I think it is a lot of fun. I don't think it's. I don't find it fun because it's just easy. It's so easy. But that's the. But the point I think of the ending of that movie is that you're expecting one thing, and he's giving you. And This is something else that Wesley Morris talks about: is that you're expecting one thing, um, and but I thought this at the time: you get expecting one thing, and you're getting like a totally different completely bonkers version of, of the other th- thing that that could be. Well, I
0: think, I, no, I, I so wasn't. Regards... I mean, I, had, I had this expectation based off of how he's ended his last three films. He ends, you know, in Glorious Bastards. Well, he ends in Glorious Bastards with, um, you know, Christoph Waltz getting the, the, the Nazi, the um, swastika slashed into his head, interestingly enough, connection there with Manson. Um, but, but, you know, the, the entire theater destruction and killing of of Hitler Um, leading into Django Unchained which is Django just blowing away an entire household of slave owners leading into Hateful Eight which is the slow execution and hanging of Jennifer Jason Lee's character he's done this for the last and, and and actually even before that Death Proof where Kurt Russell gets the shit kicked out of him and finally has his head stomped in with a you know uh high heel like he's ended all his last four films the same exact fucking way with this weird like catharsis and i'm like okay but that's the thing he's but, doing it again see, but you
1: can't it's only catharsis if you are if you feel catharsis if there's not an emotional if there's not an I emotional f- reckoning that comes with it then it isn't catharsis it comes no it's so, boredom now it's like a new to me it's like okay you're doing so that's so my whole thing with this movie is again. that this movie is up until the ending which perhaps is the same, but it is I think it 's different in a lot of ways because it 's much compared to Django was a failure because he just pushed it he just pushed that shit too far Django was the ending of Django was great until he blows up the house and does a horse dance in front of the 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 burning house you know what i mean that's that 's too much he goes too far. um Inglorious Bastards. I didn't Candyland like. Candyland turns into caramel. Yeah, I didn't like the whole movie for Inglorious Bastards. I thought the whole premise, except for the Christoph Vault scenes, was oh yeah, just it's... wrong. It was a miss. I mean, he I just mean, we, we, can,
0: we can like talk to a degree about Tarantino. I like of his last three movies. I like Death Proof because I think Death Proof is just kind of fun. It's 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 a light kind of saccharine, enjoyable exploitative. He just kind had to show he was actually. better than
1: a uh, better director than Robert Rodriguez. I don't think he had to show that. He already done that from. Was it, like, I think it was important.
0: The Dust to Dawn script is so I think much it was significantly in, better than the final product.
1: I think at the time it was important for him to be like, no, I'm. It's still me. That's why he called this Once Upon a Time
0: in uh, <laughs> Hollywood. Once a time, time in Mexico, Mexico. Um, which he was the best thing <laughs> in. But you know, but you know, uh, like like Death Proof is fun and Glorious Bastards is. Outside of Waltz, to me, it's just a fucking Gar and and um, what's her name? Uh, the I can't remember her name. Um, was that Diane Kruger? No, no. The, it was Diane Kruger's in it. But I meant the uh, the oh, French actress. Oh yeah. yeah um, yeah. you know, outside of of those two, like that film doesn't work for me at all. You know, you have Eli Roth as a as a major figurehead. You're you're not going to be doing good. And work. Bj Novak, yeah,
1: making um, office faces, surviving
0: till the end, like being there for the final <laughs> yeah, scene. Yeah. Um, I like Django Unchained because I, I see Django Unchained once again as kind of light. Um, like the ending's ridiculous. Like the very ending's ridiculous. It's a but, very light movie. Well, it's not light, <laughs> but I mean like it's...
1: It just, yeah, by the end of it, there's a conceit, there's a it's twist. An film. There's a twist, and then after the twist, it devolves into, um, uh, it devolves into a different kind of thing. It yeah. devolves into uh, too much gunplay. Yeah, and no, no abandoning- I, like, I like it. I like it up until the candy,
0: um, the candy beats meeting Waltz again. Mm-hmm. and this is the problem. like these these, these movies have kind of like blended so much together for me that I don't even remember a lot of these character names, mm-hmm. um, and then I just I fucking despise hateful. Eight. Yeah I uh,
1: There is like I don't just, think there's anything uh, really bad. to recommend about the hateful
0: Eight. I like Kurt Russell and I like Walton Goggins in it. I will
1: never under, I think the whole culture has just gotten together, and it's just like, you know what Walton Goggins were going to say yes to. And everyone's occasionally people are just like why, and those people have disappeared off the face of the earth. Walton Goggins is fine. I'm not, I'm not sure why anybody cares we, we about are, Walton Goggins. We
0: are definitely learning that um Tarantino's probably a big Justified fan. You, <laughs> you think got, so? You got Walton Goggins.
1: You got Damon Hermian.
0: Uh, mm, you got uh, Timothy. <laughs> you got Olen.
1: Timothy Dalton just showing up there. Yeah. Maybe he made him act out some 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 Justified on set. Um, but I think the difference between this movie is that for most of this movie, for this, this movie is what two hours and forty something minutes. Yeah. Right, so right for about. two hours and twenty minutes, he is literally making, like you said, he's making two different movies. But those movies have a, those movies have a, <sighs> a similar nostalgic, kind of like elegiac tone. Of them, you know what I mean? Like it's a, it's it's, he's immersed us into this world that he has obviously been immersed in, like his whole life. You know what I mean? Or wishes that he could have been immersed in for like most of his adult life. But that's, that's we're in it. But it's so it's, that's but it's actually actually I want to bring this up really quickly.
0: That is another kind of problem I have with this film. I think we talked about this, you know, off air a few days ago after we saw the second movie. We'll talk about in the second half of this episode, guys. We're splitting in the two. Um that's a twist Mario. <laughs> oh, and then I was going to light you on fire with a blowtorch. Damn, Damn it. it. Um but you know like like the kind of like the some some of the sound design choices and the editing of the soundtrack that, that didn't really bug me as much as I think it, it bothered you in terms of like playing the exact song for the exact time. But it only
1: bothers me for the exact same reason that you were bothered by like the kind of um it, it, by the pacing it inf- problems. It, it, you know what I mean? It the really tone affects and pacing. the
0: pacing. Um you know, and, and there's a lot of work done into like like accurately depicting the set design, like like that's some of the best work I've seen in mm-hmm. a film. Like how much it immerses you in this world. Yep. But man, uh, like, and I, the immersion's lost for me without bad. The cinematography is in this film. The cinematography is it's, unremarkable. It's it's unremarkable, and the color
1: is very feels dark.
0: So it's dark, but it still has a lot of. It still has a lot of distinctive colors. Like there's such little saturation that it feels digital. It feels like mm. I'm watching kind of a, a interesting, a modern take, a modern like recreate. It, it feels like a recreation, a recreation of the past. It, I, yeah, you know, I guess so. And we talked about this a few weeks ago with with um, I almost said Avatar with the Aviator. <laughs> With you know the amount of work that Scorsese put into kind of recreating that that motif and the time well, and the saturation, wanted, but he went over the top. But he even, wanted to create even something like, film styles. I'm not sure Quentin didn't want to create film, film it, styles, but so you... like something to the, even the extent of like lightly has you know the granularity that exists in um, Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan or kind of the slow saturation, light saturation that's there in the Coen Brothers' True Grit, kind of gives you a sense of Place in, in terms of a time of where the film exists. And to me, it's so clean at a lot of parts. This fil- like, especially that, er- like, opening up the, the, the clear delineation of black and white footage mm-hmm. and then, like, leading it, everything's so clear, clean that it, it, it takes me out of it. And, and like, when you're so authentically creating a world in its time... You know, and and trying to do that work, even when the footage is meant to be of the past, for it to be so clean, it's just such a weird uh-huh. choice that, that that once again works to like take me out of the action. Like I'm constantly yeah. being taken out of the action. Like, I
1: don't think the cinematography. The cinematography is definitely not great. There's some weird. Um, there's some weird lighting choices um, on the in and uh, in many of the interior. Um, shots, especially regarding Rick and Cliff. When they're in, like, Rick's house or they're in the restaurant, um, everything is just... Everything is, is overcast with, like, a brown... Like, a, like a coppery hue. It's very strange. Um, but I think to that end, there's a... Quentin Tarantino seems to be doing a lot of things in here that he hasn't ever really done before. There's a lot, a lot of shots in here that I've never seen him do. And those shots are re- relegated to... The um, interplay, so I was listening to another podcast where they were talking about the, um, how like the least effective things in this, one of the least effective things in this movie is like the interplay between Rick and Cliff. Um, and I think, I think Quentin Tarantino had a problem with that too. I think he had a, a problem conveying visually um, the emotional relationship between these two guys. So we get a lot of weird shots. Like when he comes out of the restaurant and he lights up that cigarette, like, why are we, why are we down here? Like, why are we under, like, why are we under the cigarette? There's that, even when they come into the restaurant, like, there's that kind of, like, they come in and they're, like, like, almost, like, pushing into the restaurant, and he kind of pushes in a little on them. It's like, why is this so forceful? Like, it's not, whatever reason could, he could have for doing it that way is not echoed anywhere else in the movie, you know what I mean? I think it's. Rick you could say it's like oh maybe it's, maybe it's rick trying to own the room but rick clearly doesn't own the room like he's stuttering right after that he's not owning the room anymore you know what i mean he's has stopped owning the room and nothing, so and it's nothing not can like suggest
0: it's, a attempt to to command the room like in terms right of like exactly
1: so why why make these shots i think there's a lot of i think one of the things i really enjoyed about this movie is that for quentin tarantino Aside from the ending, and aside from like the alternate history stuff, there's a lot of new. Th- there's a lot of new things happening here. That seems like he's just like trying some stuff out to just kind of like get under. He- he's trying to get at something. I think my problem with this movie, which again I really liked, I enjoyed a lot of it. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio fucking kills oh. it. Kills it.
0: I think. I think everyone given something to chew on here is doing really great work.
1: Yeah, even, like, Kurt Russell is, like, fairly effective as just a narrator later and, you know, as the head stuntman guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, Randy! <laughs> um, I'm not sure what... I'm not sure why he's making this movie. And I've heard every take under the sun about why he's making this movie, that it's it's about his, like, creative mortality, that he's siding with rick and he's anti-hippie he's anti change in culture that it's like a very republican movie um in the sense that it's so anti like left-wing mentality here um i've heard every you know we've heard we've heard all the problems about like the misogyny the sharon tate not getting enough lines and we i want to talk about that before we leave like the margot robbie sharon tate thing which i think is fairly effective in dealing with she works as a motif. Well, I for, and, and I think that's all she's meant to be. Yeah, I she's think she's to supposed to represent, like, the alternative to what Rick's life is. You know what I mean? Or the thing that Rick used to be. She's almost like a she mirror. She represents the possibility of what, what yeah. could be. Yeah, and, and, and an ease and, of and, life and that she, Rick just and, doesn't and have Tate, anymore. And Tate
0: has become that caricature. Yeah, like in real life. of, well, and of that's, in a sense lost in Hollywood. Yes, and of, that's of, what I purity lost in Hollywood. And when they say, was, they say that the Tate murders, you know, the end of free life. Right,
1: and that's what I was when everyone was having all this. Contra, everyone was saying like, oh, you know, uh, you know, she didn't get that many lines. She's being underappreciated. She's being disrespected. I uh, was like, he's using her as a cultural artifact. He's like, which is what we have. Allowed Sharon Tate to be. He's not trying to extract her from this larger motif of what the you know, the American yeah, culture I mean, has decided was- that she is. But my pro- so my problem is all of these takes. There are all of these takes, and now your take included. I have. I am further away now, which is why it was important that you go first with your opinion. I am now even further away from what what this movie is. It's a movie. So it's. All it is now is a movie that I really like.
0: Well, we talk. I think, but we talk. that's uh,
1: but a part of me wants, with all the good things that are in it, with all of like the 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 positives and even some of like the really great things that are in it. I wanted this to be a great movie, and it's not a great movie. It's a very good movie that I am now. Like I said, I'm now further away from. As the weeks go by and the more I think about it, I don't get any closer to it. The opposite happens.
0: Well, my thing with Tarantino has always been I never go into a Tarantino film looking... That's my feet. I might be picking up my legs. Yeah. Um, (laughs) That's me rubbing my feet on the ground creating some static electricity, fellas. And ladies. Ladies, yeah. Um, I don't want that. I we talked about Catharsis earlier. and, And to me, all of his films have been a catharsis to him to to live out kind of the dreams of you know his his childhood like the, mm-hmm. the films he loved as a child the films he he watched working in a video store and all of them have been dynamically different in the sense of of the type of feature they are you know this this kind of carries a lot of that kind of european comedy flavor of the 1960s a little bit yeah you know, like that kind of like you know like like it kind of like is reminiscent of this kind of like 60s kind of like not, I don't want to say sexploitative, but to a degree sexploitative, no, those, like, those, those
1: Yeah, those cool British movies of, like, you or know... Even,
0: or even some of, like, oh, God, there is this, uh, like, kind of erotic, like, something called Lemonade, and I can't remember the name off the top of my head. It's like an Israeli film from the 70s, where, like, there's a weird general sexualization of every woman, mm-hmm. uh, but it's that's it such an artifice to it. But don't you get and this... this to me, has that same artifice, so it kind of feels here's, like it, it's capturing a it lot is. of this like lighthearted, like filmography
1: of the sixties and seventies. I'm going to interrupt you. It seemed, and this is coming off of the bat You know, Peter Fonda just died this week. Um, you know, whatever, however you feel about Peter Fonda, or Easy Rider, or whatever like that.
0: This seems he like the devil in one of the ghost in the first Ghost Rider. There so you go. That's important. <laughs> that is important. His most important role. This
1: movie. Reminds me a lot of those movies that were made after *Easy Rider*, trying to capitalize on, like, the significance or the, the money making of those um, of, of movies like *Easy Rider*. You know what I mean? Yeah, like the, a studio films... picture that's trying to be as hip as the independents were. The trying studio to
0: films, be. the studio films that that tried to follow, you know, the. the the golden age of, of the Western mm-hmm. and try to like repeat that are the films that try to repeat the spaghetti Western are the films that tried to repeat, you know, the success of the European kind of like fringe comedies, you know, that kind of like broke of the sixties that kind of like broke code rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then exactly of, of new Hollywood. Um, and it is kind of like a take on that. It's, it's, and it, I think it's kind of like a, a juxtaposition of, of what the studio interpretation of that would be but also kind of like what he, Tarantino feels would be an authentic representation of that, that they were still kind of like timid to do, timid mm-hmm. to kind of like fully dip their toes into the water. Um, you know, I mentioned this off air, like, like there's a shot uh, that's that's really exploitive, but it, it's it's intentionally to me exploitive. Um well, you know, pussycat, on purpose. Like we're pussycats leaning into the car and just like right – you know, you got, that me- you got that medium shot, but the focus of that medium shots are ass. Mm-hmm. You know, and like that is, ex- you know, that, that, there's an ex- exploitative nature to that. But that's intentional because those films at that time had that extent to it, um, ha- had that characteristic. And that's why I don't go into a Tarantino film looking for anything. I go into a Tarantino film just looking for the motifs that he's trying to mimic and maybe bring into the modern era. But here's air. the... And here's my big, biggest problem with this film. <laughs> okay. So this is, you know, the kind of, like, the mod... Uh, with Tarantino's Western, I've always kind of thought that, to a degree, like, the modern Western was done better by, like, the Coen brothers. That they kind of captured kind of the same kind of tense of that. But at the same time, True Grit kind of has a lot of, like, follies in its own self Um, that it doesn't that I'm like okay you know maybe Tarantino has a better grasp on the evolution and and the timelessness of of the certain western compared to um, like what the Coens did and this was the movie where I was like oh but Paul Thomas Anderson knows how to fucking do the 1960s and 70s better than um, Tarantino did because to me I watched this and I was like I'd much rather be watching Inherent Vice oh yeah because Inherent Vice is captures all of the like what Tarantino's doing mm-hmm. in a much more tight and interesting way okay. and, and captures it in, in a way that is pays a nice tribute here's where to
1: here's what we'll do, Mario. I'll make I'll I'll leave this I'll leave this metaphor or this simile on the table. And we can pick it up or we can do whatever we want with it. There's been a lot can of I, talk can I look at it, can I turn it around? You can turn it around. Like
0: like Resident Evil where I'm trying to look for the code. Yeah, exactly. So
1: I can escape. Yep. The hunter. Um to do this stuff well you have to be and he does it well i mean we're not saying he's it's a no bad movie. but he to, does to well. do to dip you, to, to do it masterfully dip, maybe yes to dip your toe into another world and have that world feel both whole fully realized but also deeply considered from like the span of 30 years so you can see what the flaws are and you can you can subtly remark on them you need to be you know, which is what Paul Thomas Anderson does in everything. In Inherent Vice, in Phantom Thread. Yeah, I think Inherent Vice and
0: Boogie, Boogie Nice Boogie kind be of,
1: the best kind of comparable... Even a little, even in There Will Be Blood, too. You know what I mean? Where he's kind of reaching back and he's and making there will be Blood a broad, does kind of, arcing... And There Will Be Blood kind of like hits some of those, those 60s kind of... Mm-hmm.
0: Touches on kind of like the independent Westerns that were rising from the subversion and nihilism of, of some of the spaghetti Westerns or European Westerns. Yeah,
1: yeah. There is... There's been a lot of talk... From Quentin Tarantino about how, like, after he's done making movies that he thinks he might want to write novels. Like, that he's, like, a born novelist. Or go on the stage. His scripts are... His scripts have... Are famously, like, like novels. They're, you know, just 300-page books that he hands to people with with the dialogue broken out of them. Quentin Tarantino is, like, the... I imagine would be, like, a Stephen King-esque novelist. You know what I mean? Where he sees everything visually... But he's not a good enough writer to get me all the way down there. You know what I mean? Stephen King has written a lot of books. The one book that I think he successfully took me anywhere else other than, like, just the book was... We'll talk about it in a couple weeks. Yeah, okay. During our, guys, special drop,
0: special Stephen King
1: episode. We're going to do a special Stephen King episode to celebrate the It Chapter 2. The
0: people who just heard one second of what Tom was saying, though, have no exactly the book he's talking about. Um, and so, that, that's your
1: reading assignment. Read yeah, that book. Yeah. Um, whereas I think uh, Paul Thomas Anderson and Alfonso Cuarón, we want to put in here, you know, go like throwing us back to, to Mexico in the 70s, stuff like that. Filmmakers like that are, you know, your Jonathan Franzen type people. You know what I mean? Where they can depict a fully realized world that has already happened and kind of narrow in on certain things and using metaphors... And in a filmmaker 's you know toolbox that would be images, comment on stuff while also making that world fully realized and i 'm going to friends and because I love friends and so but i 'm sure there's people can email us or tweet us other novelists who do the same thing. Quentin Tarantino is a storyteller and he 's a good storyteller, but he 's not taken me somewhere new when I was watching *Inglorious Bastards or Django Unchained, um, I was not or even the hateful Eight, I was not anywhere that I, that I felt transfixed. And that's, you and know that's what why, I mean?
0: and that's why, like his best movies take place in modern day because he yeah. knows how to write characters. He knows how to create real. Even like when the actors can't, you know, Michael Madsen their way into a good performance. When his films take place in the modern day, but they have these motifs of the past, they work extremely well. Mm-hmm. That's why Kill Bill has, you know. Kill Bill is such a great <clears throat> film for me that it, it captures a lot Kill of the Bill. essence yeah. of the '70s and '60s, especially kind of like the, the those, Japanese, like it's a perfect. perfect dist- it's a
1: perfect. Dist- it's a funny because it's a perfect distillation of what Quentin Tarantino has been trying to do ever since Jackie Brown, which is pay tribute to all of these different movie styles and filmmakers that he loves. He dumped them all into Kill Bill, and then has been kind of piecing them together one by one, like extracting certain things out from certain movies one by one, um, and. Yeah, and it's 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 weird. It's become weird, and I and that's the thing too. Like even
0: Jackie Brown like works extremely well
1: because it takes place in the modern day. It has all those elements. Yeah, it's a little to the past, but it's still it's too Quentin Tarantino. It is when Quentin Tarantino became like a definite or an adjective like that's Quentin Tarantino esque. He made the most Tarantino esque film ever. Um, But it this really reminds me of Two Days in the Valley. It's a good Eric Stoltz performance. That's all you want. The performance too. Um, yeah. Um, it's and it's become really weird and I, it and it it bugs me. This movie actually, the more I think about it, it, like bugs the shit out of me. And not for any of like the like super woke PC reasons that people want me to be bugged about it for. Like on the Colin McEnroe show, where like the people that hated it was just like, oh, I don't know how this. You know, he didn't tackle race. He didn't tackle any of this stuff. It's about movie about two guys. It's a movie about two guys and their life, and that that life is very narrowly delineated into being in a car, being on the set of a western, and being at their house. Yeah, men and women both play tribute just to these two men.
0: Yeah, you know, like Timothy Oliphant's not not doing much here either. You know,
1: no, no, he's just <laughs> Timothy it They just all, all exist. Over the
0: place. They all exist to. Expand that narrative. You get Bruce Stern, you know. Bruce Stern's not doing anything. It was supposed to be Burt Reynolds. Yeah, but they're not doing anything. All no. they, ex- all these characters exist is you know, and that, and that even extends to the, like the Bruce Lee controversy or Sharon Tate controversy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the Bruce Lee thing is is echoed just in Cliff's mem- like in his in, memory, in his memory. So like, there's no way that being thrown into a car causes that dent. Although I do love Zoe Bell's reaction. This first time, like Zoe Bell's like a performance. Where I was like, ah, you're pretty good in this. um like everybody exists to hold up these two men. Yeah, and that's because like it's a character. It's always going to
1: be a character piece with Tarantino. Um, but I don't. I, I, in the end, despite how funny I think the ending is, uh, I mean, especially when Rick just walks out of his garage with the flamethrower, just just very casually has a flamethrower in his back and melts that. Everyone
0: under. all right? The hippies, but the fucking hippies <laughs> aren't like that.
1: That's a good line. <laughs> there's some there's a funny lines. His goddamn fucking hippies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's... I've, I've, I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio is so
0: good in this movie. He's so great. but it's It just, did make me want to see, like, a pure comedy from Tarantino. Yeah. <laughs>
1: it makes me want to just... It makes me want to see more movies from Tarantino in the sense that I want that to do... That's strip pretense. Yeah, just get rid of the garbage. Because I don't know what to do with the garbage. And that really... It's been really bugging me that I don't know what to do with this movie. I don't know what to do with it. It's going on... It's, like, on my long list for, like... Movies of the year, it's gonna probably be on my top ten because this year stinks. Not a, not not anywhere near mine. <laughs> right. Fine. Um, but Maybe the I is still up there, but I don't know. I don't. Beyond that, I don't know what to do with it. And if nine other, if if eight better movies came out that were just like even a little better, they would go on ahead of here because I'm assuming by the end of the year I won't feel anything for this movie anymore. I won't even be confused by it. I'll just be like, well, that was the thing that happened. Leonardo DiCaprio was great in it.
0: And start, Brad... You'll start
1: just like Nick. You'll be like Leonardo DiCaprio was great in High Life, and I'll be like, no, not everyone was in High Life, Tom. imagine if Claire Denny just made remade High Life for the rest of her life with different actors, <laughs> Or just no, just put characters from different movies into High Life somewhere. Or they did the they did the Great Escape thing, and then just put people's heads digitally. Great. on Robert Pattinson's body. Good, yeah. that's good. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm for that too. All right, so you got anything else? No, I mean it's worth a watch. All Tarantino's movies are worth a watch. Um, it's making money. Yeah. I mean, so how will you feel if Brad Pitt wins Best Supporting Actor? I don't care. He I don't care either. Anymore. I'll good be happy for, for, for Brad Pitt. Good for him. He, he wins his second Oscar. What did he win? One Oscar he, for Argo. Oh. Pff. Well, of a producer, yeah, yeah, but Ben Affleck gets to share that Oscar, <laughs> so it's not has no value. Just like Matt Damon's to, Oscar to has to Matt, no value.
0: To Matt Damon, it does because Matt Damon has only one of those.
1: No, and Ben Affleck's like Ben Affleck, I got defin- to. Ben Affleck definitely made Matt Damon give him his Oscar. You give me that, right? And they gambled it yeah. away and lost it to Tobey <laughs> Maguire. I hope Toby. so. Toby, <laughs> I hope so. All right, we will be right back with Mario's fifty.
0: Film is an important part of connection to moments in our life. That is a hot take. Hot, hot take there, right? I've never heard it before. That film can be pretty important to your life. If only there was a podcast that proved this point. <laughs> weekly. <laughs> weekly. Without by, fail. By weekly, I mean W-E-A-K. Not. Oh, W-E-A. Mario, come on. Oh, you, you do pretty good. Sometimes I, I shit to bed. <laughs> the bed. Your problem is The movie's the story of. Tells the tale of. This is podcast tells the tale of <laughs> this podcast tells the tale of Pivotal Films. Um I think a lot of a lot of times in our youth we try to connect to what our parents love. To some degree. Some people do. I don't know if everyone does that. Mm-hmm. But I definitely did. Um, you know. Way earlier in this podcast, we talked about Withering Heights. We're going to talk about another film way later in this podcast that were important to my mom.
1: We just talked about Spinal Tap, and we're going to talk about other ones that like are my dad movies. Yeah. That he was just like, here you go. Deal with it.
0: For me, my connection with my father in terms of film is strained heavily in the sense that he is a, a major fan of the sports film and a major fan of what was the golden age of the cowboy movie, the, the clear delineated lines of the Western, mm-hmm. um, and even in in the waning years <laughs> of John Wayne's life. The waning years of John's life. That was a nice. nice little wordplay oh, there. Years, yeah. uh, unintentional, but still wordplay, ladies. Um <laughs> That had a clear line between good and bad, and those films never appealed to me. they were, even from a young age, there was something missing a certain emotional complexity. They're a little staid, a little staid, very staid, very, very preachy,
1: um, very tired. So, did they, he they, like open a range? The Kevin Costner, Robert Duvall movie?
0: No, he hated that. He thought it was too long.
1: It was very long. Yeah.
0: Um, but, you know, things like uh, movies even I like, like Tombstone. Mm-hmm. Like, he loved Tombstone. It has a very clear line of good and bad. Even even something as imperfect, hard X on that one, as, as unforgiven. Uh, he, he didn't like it because it was too morally complex. As, oh, yeah. Um, which I, I just don't like because I don't think it's that good of a movie. Yeah. Uh,
1: I can't wait to have this conversation with you. Many, many weeks from now, and you're just like son of a bitch. You walk in here, and you're like, God damn it!
0: I haven't seen it in many, many years, but I just do not like it. But I also might have not liked it because Morgan Freeman dies in it. So, well, have to find thirteen-year-old Mario's thirteen-year-old. Mario. Diary entry. Like, dear diary, I did not like Executive Decision because Steven Seagal died. <laughs> I don't like Unforgiven. <laughs> Because Morgan Freeman dies, so I struggled with, with that. With, with my mom, I, I had a lot of films that she would watch. You know, she would they they wouldn't present these movies to me. They they wouldn't try to like make me love these films. The the only film that my mom really was really hard pressed to get me to love was Halloween. She may have slightly succeeded. Yeah, maybe. only slightly created a monster of horror. <laughs> um. Th- but also, to be fair, the first story she ever read to me was The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Talk about that being a, a good night story. Over five nights, The, the Legend of Sleepy Hollow. she because kept falling asleep? No, she just just wanted to keep it. She wanted to build it. She, she, perfect, Actually, nice stopping points.
1: Yeah. No, I just, I was, I've was, i always found the story point. But let's continue.
0: If you're five, you like the time and the history. But I always had a, a problem connecting that way, because... My dad always kind of loved the, the morally black and white,
1: you know. Well, here, here's a really... When was... When did you kind of figure out that film was like your thing? That film was going to kind of be like your connecting juice, like the tendon, you know what I mean? I mean, the first time
0: I ever did a Best of the Year awards was 1997. Uh-huh. The first time it... I was 10. No, I was 11 at that point. First time I ever tried to write my own sort of screenplay, I was 9. So it's always kind of been... the first, No, we talked about this uh, with the Dumb and Dumber episode. Um, where we talked about Dumb and Dumber. Uh, mm-hmm. where, you know, uh, was there a Dumb and Dumber episode? Nope. No, there wasn't. We talked about Dumb and Dumber because of Tommy Boy.
1: Tommy Boy. Yeah,
0: the Tommy Boy episode. <laughs> I was just like, you didn't have Tommy Dumber <laughs> earlier. Really you probably episode. mentioned Dumb and Dumber a bunch of times. Um, but uh, the, the first year where film became important to me was in in March of, like, 93.
1: So I was... Six years old. So you were always looking for this. And, this and, and joining. Like it
0: was. It was. It was always. It was. You know, subconscious. Very trivial. Very um, flat. Two dimensional. It was. It was. Sure. It was a very clear kind of expectation of what I wanted. Yeah. But around the time I did, around eleven or twelve, I remember my dad showed me. My dad was. My mom actually. Had me what it was, a New Year's Day. TBS. Mm-hmm. There was there was two movies playing back to back. That is an interesting double feature. But the first one was Jaws, and we talked about Jaws mm-hmm. for very recently. Um, and Jaws struck with me mostly because like that was I'd seen Jaws before. Mm-hmm. That was the first time I'd seen it unedited with mm-hmm. the, the shark exploding. It's the best, but then right after it, and this is I think this is right around the time that the film, uh, the television ratings had, had debuted. So mm-hmm. maybe it wasn't, maybe it wasn't January 1st, but it was right like the day that the they started the TV ratings. It was a big <laughs> important part for me, you know, TV, PG, TV 14. And right after that was a TV 14 showing of this film. And because you know, this this movie kind of skirts the line of, of it's an R rated film, but you know, kind of nowadays it, it'd probably be. Might be a PG thirteen. I don't know. There's yeah. like a weird it's, it's nihilism a weird to it that, no, like it's, you, it's that, you, thematically, definitely it might be very awe, dark. Yeah, but but but, presentation wise, a yeah PG thirteen, and and my dad said this is you know my favorite western, um, and I never never seen this one. I'd heard about it, never seen it. He just didn't want me to watch it. He never shown it to me because he he didn't own it, and it just he thought it was too long and it would it would lose my interest. And I was enthralled by it. Oh yeah, I was. Captured by it. And this was a four-hour-long presentation on television, I believe. <laughs>
1: yeah, it would have had to have been, right?
0: I think it was, Actually, I think it was around three and a half hours. It was, it was like a three-and-a-half-hour block. Uh-huh. But, you know, save for a few moments of, of things slowing down a bit, I was captured by it. Even during those moments of slowdown, something unspoken, something unknown, something mathematical to an extent kept me enthralled. It was a simple story but had such depths of moral ambiguity to it had such outstanding senses of of standing in pure opposition to even its title that I could not help but from the first viewing fall in love with it Mm -hmm. it's a movie that that I can't come back to constantly you know it's it's a watch it's a hard long watch but every couple of years, I find myself coming back to it and my love for it growing and growing and growing. And, and it's such a, a quintessential film in the evolution of, of cinema itself. And in terms of, of what filmmakers take from it, that I, you know, I, I very deliberately put this film at 50. Because mm-hmm. it, it played such a pivotal role in my life and such a pivotal role, I think, in film. Mm-hmm. And this is the 1966 Sergio Leone finale to the dollar trilogy the good the bad and the ugly against the backdrop of 1862 and the american civil war the film follows three rogues the titular good the bad and the ugly although you know what eli wallace you're not a bad looking guy he's not a bad looking guy no no, no. i mean he's ugly in personality for sure
1: is he eating a chicken wing when he jumps out that
0: window or (laughs) no no a nice big hearty chicken like Like that's a a turkey leg turkey
1: leg Yeah, yeah yeah yeah
0: But, you know, like, he's, he's, he's sweaty. But Eli, Eli Wallach could get it.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, as they race through the New Mexico desert in a search of, of, of a cachet of stolen Confederate gold mm. left by a dying, thirst-hungered man. Uh, after a series of, of death marches with a pretty solid, like, makeup effects. Like, mm-hmm. going back to that movie, the makeup effects on a dehydrated Blondie are pretty spectacular. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you watched it. And you're like, oh, it looks rough. Oh Jesus! Yeah. Um, runaway carriage pursuits, No, not really pursuits, just slowing down the horse. Yep. And uh, a shootout in an abandoned town. The three men descend upon Sad Hill Cemetery, where the gold has been buried in one of the nearly thousands of graves. So <laughs> many people died just in this spot. Uh huh. What happened? Like, this town had, like, billions of people
1: in it. <laughs> yeah, they did not have the... They had must have had a housing shortage at some point because, yeah. you know, there was not a lot of houses Andrew around Garfield there. Andrew Garfield and Michael Shannon <laughs> were there building houses at some point.
0: <laughs> so I talked about why this was pivotal to, pivotal to me as a child and why it stands as, as number 50 um, from, from a personal standpoint. But I, I keep coming back to this, and I keep trying to find out whether or not it's actually a good movie, hmm. um, which which is crazy, because you know, well, it's a upon its, initial, it's upon its initial review, it's it's not met with, with significantly solid reviews. Um, it is the the third film in the Dollar Trilogy, following you know a fistful of dollars and a few, a few dollars more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, fistful of dollars is made for basically pennies. Uh, I think. Um, Clint Eastwood receives fifteen thousand dollars for that film, which is nonsense. Yeah, it's it's almost a shot by shot remake of Yojimbo. Mm-hmm. Um It's you know it's basically Sergio Leone, Gus Van Zanting himself. <laughs> uh, it, but these films are, are such you know huge successes in Europe that he gets nearly a blank check. He ends up spending around, I believe, $1.6 million, 250000 of that going to Clint Eastwood, plus yep. 10% of the U.S. gross. Just a, a nice early symbol that Clint Eastwood's a bone-dry, die-in-the-wool Republican. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which he used all that money to make to play Misty for me. And to buy a chair. That he would, oh, he, no, and, and paint your wagons, probably. he would abuse.
0: Yeah. Play Misty for me, paint your wagons, and to find a good-acting chimp.
1: Yeah, that's what you need.
0: And for uh, Jeff Daniels' money. And, uh, for, was that with the hell, Bloodwork or whatever? Bloodwork, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Huh. I was so excited when that twist in Bloodwork, by the way. I was so young and I was like, I called that twist. And I was like, and I watched it back and I was like, everyone called that twist.
1: Well, I, I was a, a, a kind of pseudo Michael Conley fan, so I was excited when um, that was going to happen. And then when I saw the movie, I was like, Ru- yeah, ruined. But, you know, so, so
0: it, it, it's called the spaghetti western. It's it's the Italians, uh the Europeans doing, doing their take from the golden age of, of Westerns, from the John Ford of you know Westerns, from the John Wayne, good and bad, clearly denulated black and white, the two kinds of men mm-hmm. as you know, the Tuco and later Blondie would sort of say it, that, that that morally defined um structure of of what people are, the the dichotomy. Um but this movie captivated me from the young age and, and I didn't understand why, because it was, you know, I didn't understand. And this is why I kept coming back to it. Cause it is, it is it is long. Um, it, it has pacing issues at times. Um, and it very much does not have pacing issues at other times. Um, and it's, it's, it's story is, is microscopic.
1: Well, and it's an best extent. parts are best appreciated in context. Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, but as, as, I, as I grew you know, to love this movie, it, it's best summarized by an by, uh, MFA student, a, a good little thesis she wrote called The Unabashed Complexity of the Good and Bad and the Ugly by Tara Uh The Ethical Certainty of the Good and Bad and the Ugly and the rest of the Dollars trilogy is it's not as incontrovertible as the Westerns that preceded it. And that's you know just the unabashed nihilism of this film. Mm-hmm. You know We're presented with the ugly and the bad both having moral clarity and certainties in a way ugly to a degree has has a willingness to to hang his neck out quite literally um in a partnership and and has a certain degree of um loyalty you know Mm -hmm. um he's he's extremely greedy but you know He's kind of presented as somebody who who will run the score for as long as possible. With some, you, you get a degree of as long as you don't turn your back on him, he won't turn his back on you. Yeah. Um, Angel Eyes operates purely by the moral code of he will always fulfill a, a obligation. He will always fulfill a contract. You know that great scene where he says, "You know, you paid me a thousand dollars to kill you," uh-huh. and he laughs and then fucking. Puts the pillow on his head and shoots him four times <laughs> he uses. in the head. Four times. He uses the pill. times. So, uses pillow as a but silencer. Then, but then pulls the gun away. Doesn't have the gun pressed against it. No. I think it's not even a silencer. He just Why he did he cares. do it? He cares about the cleaning of the room. Is that what it is? is that why you put yeah. a pillow over someone's face? That's never why I put a pillow on someone's the face. The brains just get caught in the sheets. That way the person comes in and goes like, oh, I have to fix the mattress, oh. but I'm glad I don't have to paint this room. Or, I mean, if the your yeah. number 50 had thought about that and maybe wrapped themselves in a blanket before they did their thing, yeah. there wouldn't have led into the climax of that movie, right? That's possibly. If Angel Eyes had been in your movie... Maybe, he would have been, maybe, maybe, been dead. Maybe there would have been... Yeah. <laughs> he would have been dead. Very dead. Um, but then you're presented with the good, and, and the first image of good is just you know, killing three bounty hunters yep. who are, for all intents and purposes, or as some Redditors would say, intensive purposes, are <laughs> just doing their job of taking this, this person who's obviously committed crimes in, mm-hmm. um, And he takes Tuco in for himself, and it turns out he's just running a gamut with Tuco. So, from the early level, even the good is presented with this extreme moral ambiguity. And throughout that film, the good is a pretty big piece of shit himself. You know, it's, it's not until later in the film... And Richard Necknell points this out. The film historian um, he did a commentary on the, I think it's on the 40th edition special, special edition of the Good, the Bad, the Ugly. Really, pretty solid commentary. He had some personal dialogues with Sir Juliano. That kind of gives oh, you a really? real personal perspective nice. of it. Um, and the cigar represents like a real growing symbolism of the humanity of Blondie, which is uh, hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Because famously, the cigars were the worst possible cigars that Sergio Leone could find because he just wanted Clint Eastwood to look so unhappy.
1: That's why he's always like, shifting yeah, him in his so, mouth.
0: Uh, there's a story actually of Clint Eastwood, like there was doing multiple takes. Clint Eastwood's like, this take better be it. Cause I'm going to fuck it. Like I'm going to vomit. <laughs> um, and Leone just wanted it to make him look so gruff. and felt like these really terrible cigars. Uh-huh. My personal opinion is that Sergio Leone was pretty bitter about the $250,000 up, like, Yeah. Postponed yeah. production. Um, but, you know, Blondie always has that cigar in his mouth. And, you know, after Tuco kind of does the, helps with the run for, you know, helping with the, the, the battle, kind of ending the senselessness of war, mm-hmm. you know, he shares the cigar with them, And then even more specifically, when he shares the cigar, and that's just a great moment to humanize the good before that climactic battle where you want to have a focus of somebody who's good with the dying soldier. Um, but beyond that, you know, like, even when he's just rough and tumble and just, like, fucking dehydrated, he's not really murdering people willy-nilly well, to a degree sh- that... But he's also shooting the, their hats off. Yeah, that the good and the bad are, but he's still <laughs> operating outside the moral scope yeah. of what you would expect from, um, the, the heroes of, of the time. hmm Um... And that you know that, that's interesting, just just this this is a film that is rests in that nihilism, that mm-hmm. rests in that, that complete utter cycle of violence, you know the, the, the depravity of war paints the backdrop to this. Um, you know, Schnekel also talks about how Leone was was a huge fan of. Um, like like classical art and a lot, how a lot of the scant like landscapes, you know, have, have this mystical quality to it, but also the surrealistic quality to uh-huh. it. Um, and that, that was an intentional, like, like a surrealism to the vast landscapes, you know, it's, it, they're, they're Spain for one thing. And they kind of had this endlessness to them, but they also have this alienness to them. Mm-hmm. You know, the Westerns of the late fifties, both on television and um, in film, were typically California or Nevada, so they had very well defined, recognizable territory. You'd now go off to Spain, where there's a little bit more greenery, and the land, the general landscape is is just slightly different, and it has this alien quality to it, that adds this kind of like mythicalness to it. You know, these are three very mythical kind of beings that represent. Moral certainties in certain ways, but also
1: represent these kind of like ideas that exist outside of the scope of well, and you're also b- people. It's also fairly obvious that it is isn't America, whether or not you know it's America or not. It just isn't America.
0: No, why do why do all these Union and Confederate soldiers look Spanish? <laughs>
1: and, yeah, and why is the dubbing so? Why are they clearly not speaking English? Yeah.
0: Why um, are they? Not, well, apparently, they're not saying anything because it's filmed without sound. I mean, they're probably speak. They're speaking English, but the just sound was not recorded. Yeah. Um, they were saying, yeah, they Little were saying ADR. something. Well, they, no, they're, they're speaking, Eng- they they're hit speaking a word, English. They hit a word or two. You don't even know what they are saying. Um,
1: <laughs> they, but you, you don't care. Yeah. Because it isn't about location, it's about, it's weirdly, like, about character. Even though the characters don't move a lot through the course of the movie, like, there's not a, a ton of growth. It's you not know what I mean? character. I
0: think it's character. No, it's, but it's, it's It's symbolic, kind of like he's set it. Ar- it's archetype, it's yes, archetype. But
1: he's set it up so your only your only concern is these three guys. Oh, exactly. So it doesn't really matter where they end up or what they do. You are just You're watching on that the guys. With them, You're just yeah. it's just it's all about these and three they all, guys two two guys specifically and they
0: all carry to them, you know, at least leading to like the la- like around the two hour and thirty mark where you get a clearly delineated kind of like. Hero of the story, just by Blondie's actions, they all carry with them a certain degree of moral strength and moral depravity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Blondie abandons Tuco, leaves him to die. You know, Tuco, for all his greed and pretenses, is has gives you a sense he's going to stick with Blondie and continue the scheme. Well, they're making yeah. a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. Um, Angel Eyes for as you know much of an Anton Chigar kind of force of nature as he can be at mm-hmm. times own, operates by a very defined moral code operates by a very earnest, honest moral code. And so while they all have extremely evil traits, they all have something kind of defining, locking them into something that you could possibly root for. And, and sure. there's, there's a lack of growth. I think there's a significant lack of growth in the bad and the ugly, you know, in Tuco and angel eyes that you don't, that you don't see in Blondie. Blondie's the only one who has some sort of, like, realization of something beyond the greed. Yeah. Something beyond the money. You know, the, the realization that there's a world outside of him. He's still a piece of shit, but he has, like, this sudden understanding of space.
1: Yeah, there's an almost, like, existentialist quality to him in the sense that, like, he understands that, like, none of this really matters. So... Yeah. I'm just gonna do... All I can do is... I'm still
0: going to do the thing that's personally important to me. Right. But at the same time, I realize the futility of it against the backdrop.
1: Well, like, we can all get money or we can not me- get New money. Me- you know,
0: the New Mexico conflict. The, the Battle of Peralta where seven people died. But in Leone's division, thousands died.
1: Thousands, <laughs> thousands upon thousands yeah, of dead Literally bodies.
0: the battle. So it's based upon New Mexico... Campaign, which was just like the attempts of the Confederates to gain strongholds in Colorado for the gold and to gain the California ports. I think overall maybe a thousand, you know, belligerents die um, in the in the campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the actual battle that this is based upon, which is in Valencia County, New Mexico, um, in around April of of eighteen sixty two, uh, which is at early at most. Um, well, yeah, the, the New Mexico campaign ends like Sibley gets. um, pushed back around, like, around this time. He just retreats. Like, oh, just, shit. Like, this is dumb. The Confederates are just like, wow, we are really <laughs> at a disadvantage. Um, but at that battle, I think <laughs> at most seven people died. That's so, tough.
1: I mean, that's a tough one.
0: Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of like, Spanish army extra. died. That's like died. the
1: Gettysburg of the Southwest. I think that's what they call it, right? <laughs>
0: yeah. Probably f- a few of them died like colla- like falling yeah. on their own guns. hot.
1: I'm, da- I'm going to die now.
0: But, and I think, I think actually, though, like, trying to, you know, emulate that fatality he was, you know, speaking about his, his, <clears throat> his love of art, you know, he was, he was apparently a, a real fan of, like, Goya. I like Goya. Um, and Goya famously has those, those period of, of war art, uh, during, um, I want to say that, Is it the Spanish Civil War? Mm-hmm. Um where, you know, Goya early on kind of creates, like, these landscapes, these really nice kind of, like, paintings. He, you know, experiences the Spanish Civil War. You've, If you've seen the, the sketchings he did, uh, Yale Art Museum actually did a series, like, had a collection of these sketchings of just, like, men pissing on a pile of bodies. <laughs> um, you know, and then you get, you know, mm-hmm. sour de- you know Saturn devouring his children. Just my, post. My faves post this and, and his entire black uh was it the black series or whatever um
1: yeah that he painted on that cottage wall yeah yeah those are all um, some of my faves you know and, and
0: that's replicated in the extreme close ups of the faces like especially early, like, like that opening shot you get the you know you get the expansive landscape and then that the man, the bounty hunter after... It's actually
1: Spain's resistance to Napoleon. Okay, Spain's
0: resistance to Napoleon. Sorry. Yeah Spanish Civil War had been Later, yeah, decent like 100 years later. Uh-huh. Um, sorry, guys, not a history major. We're thinking about other stuff, I'm a constitutional law kind of guy. <clears throat> um, but you get that, you know, you get that bounty hunter after Chuko moving in the frame, and you get that carefully like sweat dripping on the face, well, and like that close up on the face of the yeah. lines. And not only that, but the, Goya the is the also desert very hot lines painted on the face.
1: Goya traditionally, um. So, when he would do like a, a a court portrait, um he would not do what most other artists would do, which was to make everyone look beautiful. He tended to make everyone look kind of how they looked in real life so everyone yeah, exactly. was everyone was really ugly and so when he would do those like, the you know, the famous, uh, the May paintings and stuff like that, uh, with the guy kind of standing there, like, the firing squad and stuff like that. There's, like, real terror in people's eyes, and it's terror that's kind of distorting their face, which is adding to, like, the emotion of the thing. And that is, when you pointed that out to me, that's 100% what's happening there in that final duel scene. You know what I mean? Where you're getting someone's eyes, but they're just kind of, like... They're crazed, you know what I mean? Or mm. someone's hand next to their gun. But it's not just like a hand. It's it's got like an odd angle to it, you know what I mean? Which is and, and
0: that's I think and that's where this film like, just to speak of the standoff, like the stand up's the, the classic moment in cinema <sighs> and it is two and a half minutes long, backed by you know, we haven't even talked about any of the score, but there is nothing any more to say about any more score,
1: right? Well, we were talking uh, on the we, way up here, the yeah. uh, way up to the Pivotal Film Studios today. We were, we were on, on the elevator. No, no. Uh, re, no, the elevator's down. Oh. Well, it, was, it goes up to 460. It goes 60. to a point, and then we got we walk. to walk. upstairs. Um, it is, I mean, it's got to be the greatest film score of all time. Well, I, don't know, I don't know what else would be on the list. No. I, I, of the greatest film scores. Of, I, like, greatest film scores of all time. Not like top ten. Struggle. I mean, what is there? Like what's on the what would fight him off the top there for this movie, because it's both innovative, and completely evocative of everything that's happening in the movie, of its time, but totally belongs to 1862, um, and is just awesome. Like is exciting and emotional and all the things you want from a film score, is its own piece of music but also completely complements not just the visuals, but the undercurrent of emotions that are happening within every scene. So you just talked about that standoff scene. The, the, the muse, the beginning of this, of the piece that starts at standoff scene has that beautifully arpeggiated guitar picking, which sounds like it's like metal on metal. Like, I don't know if whoever was playing, it was using metal finger picks and like with a steel guitar. Um, but it is fucking brilliant. It is brilliantly conceived and brilliantly played, and it's amazing. And the whole score is amazing.
0: I mean, compared to, like, Thoroughly Modern Millie and Camelot, it's fine, I guess. Is that what... What is that? Those are those are the ones that won the score. To be For guess. that year? Yeah. I mean, I assume this would have been considered an original score, not an adaptation. So, th- Thoroughly Modern Millie. We should, we should duck in a Thoroughly Modern Millie piece right here.
1: Here, we'll stop. I don't know. I don't think that works. <laughs> Who knows? I don't, think, I don't think that doesn't. It doesn't get it done for me. What would be great is
0: actually if you listen to that score and we're like, whoa, no, never mind. Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> Jesus. Episode
1: 50 is a th- th- delete th- thoroughly modern Millie episode.
0: <laughs> this entire podcast.
1: bonus modern Millie. We're going
0: to go shot for shot. Bonus podcast. <laughs> um, you know, but you get that that, that fantastic trio score. Yeah. Um, and. In two and a half minutes, you get sixty-five cuts. You know the first twenty-five cuts, and, the, and a credit to uh, Max Toheen's, um art of editing and Good Band the Ugly for this. Just he does a really compelling look at the math and the emotion and, and the storytelling mm-hmm. going on here. So the first twenty-five cuts follow a mathematical permutation. There is six possible variations of the shot that you can have, starting with good bad ugly to the good ugly bad you know ugly good bad ugly bad good all those shots follow that permeation Mm -hmm. like every single permeation of that shot is there
1: Mm -hmm.
0: at the same time the eye light cuts are all abundant you know every time you see a character shift their eyes you cut to where their eyes are going You begin with that nice wide establishing shot, you go into a medium shot, like that that medium over the shoulder, into a medium face, you know, then you get into a close shot, and the extreme close shot of either just the, like eventually into the eyes and just the gun. In those first 25 cuts, those first 25 cuts, you have seven cuts for the ugly and the um, good. You have 11 cuts for the bad. As the shots continue, ugly and the good, their eye lines uh-huh. are slowly moving in on each other. Meanwhile, ugly and the good's eye lines are slowly moving in on each other, whereas the bad is still moving back and forth. And he's framed in the middle from that establishing shot. Mm-hmm. No. To, the, to his right, our left is the ugly. To his left, our right, from that establishing shot is the good. That's why you get Tuko occasionally looking at you. While you're watching it. Exactly. Well, you get both of them. You eventually have it to where they're slinging their eyelines to where they both look at the camera. But so the
1: Eli Wallach one's more easy to point out because oh, yeah. his eyes are like wide, wide and like, terrified.
0: Bads um, are still flickering.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the reason for this is so great from a, a heavier level storytelling. Good has perfect information here. Good knows Tuco's gun is empty. The Ugly's gun is empty. He only has to focus on the bad. If Tuco, for some reason, pulls first, which we know he won't subconsciously, because we've, we're very much paying a lot of attention to the belt line of the bad, mm. we know from his finger movement, we know from the constant cuts back to that belt line that the bad's going to draw first. But even if the ugly draws first, the good doesn't give a shit because <laughs> nothing's, nothing's gonna in happen. Um, so all he has to really care about is the bad he just has to let the ugly know you know to calm the fuck down so he doesn't get himself killed
1: <laughs>
0: ugly has a little less perfect information but he has the relationship there
1: mm-hmm.
0: with uh, you know with Blondie with the good you know Tuco and Blondie despite you know the entire quabbles throughout this still kind of come back to one another so Tuco has a sense that he realizes that the bad's more of that wild card, that Angel Eyes is more of a wild card he has to focus on. If Blondie's going to pull, Blondie's probably going to pull on Angel Eyes. Yeah. And, you know, so that's why as those shots continue, their eyes are slowly, slowly meeting. Ugly isn't, you know, Angel Eyes doesn't know shit.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: he, he knows of Tuco. He knows kind of a blondie, but he knows that he is the man out. And that's why you get the eleven shots of him. And you know, just from that Neo Morancone score, that's that's overwhelmed the sounds of the birds. It's overwhelmed the sound the sound all the sounds. It's, it's just everything. everything. It yeah. is the only sound you hear. Um, the shots continue, they quicken, the score quickens with it. It paces back and forth. You you go from mediums to tights to extreme close-ups eventually you have you know the extreme close-up of angel eyes pulling medium shot of ugly like closer extreme close-up to a close-up of tuco pulling medium shot of blondie pulling just so you could see the gunfire back to our establishing shot and that's when you see you know angel eyes fall oh yeah But that entire sequence of 65 shots is telling that entire narrative to you. You're being guided to know that Angel Eyes is going to pull first. You're being guided to know that Blondie and Tuco have this They're not going to pull on each other. And it's just who's going to pull on Angel Eyes. And who's, you know, is Angel Eyes going to get Tuco first? You, You pretty much at this point have figured out Blondie's probably going to escape this. Especially since it's a prequel. Yeah. <clears throat> he just got the poncho. Um, you know, but it, it's, it's, it's building tension, but it's, it's
1: directing tension.
0: And it's, but at the same time, it's directing emotion through its editing of what every, all three of these men are feeling.
1: Well, what I find more, most fascinating about that whole sequence, and, uh, you know, I hope everyone was getting chills when they were listening to that. So it's, it's, I mean, because you can visualize it. Yeah, the
0: art of editing, like that,
1: that video, the video essay is just
0: great. But it's I love Something
1: it. to watch. It's on YouTube. What I love about that whole idea is that there's also the sequence when they go to blow up the bridge
0: <laughs> that they did twice. <laughs> they they, they missed the, the cue.
1: And they show, like, the the fuse on the, you know, they're just at the bridge. They light it and they run out of the water. Don't forget, they're in the water. And the fuse the fuse Inches is long. almost all the way gone, and they're at least like 500 feet away from the bridge when it explodes and dive behind those sandbags. They are the two fastest men ever in the history of the universe. So there's that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which is just ridiculous. But you don't I mean you don't care. It's not a. It's a, it's it's like a flaw you don't
0: care about. You don't need to
1: see the. the... There's there's the, the fact that, they, that the fact that they cover like. 500 feet in a second. You know what I mean? They insane bolt. <clears throat> insane bolt. <laughs> they're faster than you say. Bol- and, they're yeah, moving through- the and they're moving through water for a little bit of that. The fact that that happens, but then there's also the very obvious intentionality to all of those cuts that you just described to kind of make you, like... Throw you off, but also kind of affirm where you're, yeah, and where you're going. Like and what's
0: every every time you see ugly or good, it's it's followed, it's connected with a shot of the one or the other. But that's why They're this never movie's completely fascinating. Separated. The movie's fascinating. It's never because... like a bad, ugly bad shot. Yeah, all, ugly and good are always in some way locked
1: in. This movie's fascinating because both of those things can exist in the same movie. Mm-hmm. Like something as like as purely intentional and great as the final shot can intermingle with you know, them running away from the bridge or something or, has like
0: stumbling <clears throat> in terms of a narrative as to learning about his family history from his priest brother. That's happens. To be which he then
1: punches in the face Yeah, or the great, or like, I think the perfect example of this is how both things are existing together is when they are in the union camp and angel eyes is having to like beaten while they're playing the song. And, that we find out while they're playing the song that they only play that song when angel eyes is like having someone like the shit beat out of someone and all the musicians are getting sadder and sadder as they're being asked to keep playing because they know Tuco is getting the crap beat out of him like forever. Like it just keeps going and going and going. And it's totally ridiculous because those Spanish extras look so humorously sad when they're, like, staring at the window as they're trying to play, and then they yell for the fiddler player to keep playing the song, and they just look so sad. But it's also, like, weirdly profound that that is happening, That, that he's using this as a way to convey, like, not just, like, Tuco's like, the violence of it, but a kind of, like, emotional violence, too. Like, why would this movie have emotion, <laughs> emotional no, it, violence? No, because there's emotional violence when it to, does. The,
0: to, the, to, the, to the prisoners.
1: Or like, even, even
0: something that's, like, masterful in terms of the craft, but also hilarious in sense of, of the scene itself, is when Tuco's about ready to make Blondie hang himself. And Blondie's kind of warned him, you know, like, Tuco said, it's a storm coming, and Blondie said, or oh, it's fought like fire, mm-hmm. and then the cannonball hits the hotel. But you have that just perfectly, you know, spatial shot of Tuco just falling through the floor. But you never, like, lose sense of space, you, you know, because, like, the shot's yeah. long. You see a fucking, I assume the ex- neck falls on that's him. That's an ex- I, I, I have to think that's an x It doesn't look like a... That doesn't look like a... A dummy. A dummy. No. It doesn't look like a mannequin. It looks like a, just a person just took that shit. Yeah. You know, and just took some styrofoam or, or what whatever What is Is this like early is this Home Alone?
1: Yeah. Where, like, <laughs> you could just, anything can happen to you. You just live. A building fell on him. He's
0: not even, like, really bleeding that hard. He just hard.
1: pushes it off of him. It's like, oh, And he looks man. up and he's
0: like, oh, no. And it's silly, but it's so spatially sound that you never, like, lose... You know where you are in relation to the hotel. And you know when you look up. That where he's the eye line is matching perfectly yep. where Blondie was going to be hung, and that is just you know, somebody who's locked in on the crap, somebody who who's, has a, a pretty solid vocabulary of Japanese cinema from the, one of the masters. I well, mean, yeah. we're not going to talk about that director ever again, um, sadly. Yeah, we're never going to talk about Akira Kurosawa ever again. <laughs> um, but one of the masters that he, he replicated his film, you know, near are shot for shot, he, you know, a director who, who we talked about, um, with seven samurai had just such a control of spatial, of spatial sense, you know, even something as minor as that, something as not flim, uh, uh, flimsy in the sense of it's, it's, it's a narrative importance, but has such a command of where you are, in space is is profound you know and that's that's why this was the film where i you know going going back to why it's pivotal for me like all of my you know, movies I, I connected with tried to connect with my dad just didn't work because they were just so and i repeat this word over and over again like saccharine and i don't know if saccharine is the right word but they they had an ease to them and a, they were boring in the sense of how obvious they were and mm. how you know paint by numbers they were how much they lacked any sort of craft to them they were the quintessential studio production um, the quintessential story told in the very most obvious of senses Um and this was the movie I watched where I was like oh this is you know somebody who's still finding his voice and i think you know Leone would would even better find his voice I, i'm one of the few people who really loves the long long take of, of once upon a time in america he would he would better find his place in 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 terms of establishing a voice or in terms of establishing a sense of control later on mm-hmm. maybe and especially when he's broken free from the constraints of needing to make something that was just a money maker and that's mm-hmm. what good and bad and ugly in the end was it was just you know meant to be that kind of money maker trilogy finale, mm-hmm. um, you know, it turns down making a sequel decades later of Tuco, you know, trying to get his money back, and police would say, "I'd narrate it." Joe Dante was going to possibly direct it. Oh gosh, could you imagine that? Um, Maybe, Mick, but it's Mick, it's Mick somebody it's somebody who thing. has such a a command of of space, but it realizes at the same time like it, it carries you know. And, and, like, that's why the three-star review, maybe, that Roger Ebert initially gave it, even as a 31-year-old film critic, a year after he started his professional career, like, you could see in the sense of of the flaws and, and see in the sense of why you could initially, on a first viewing, see this as kind of, like, a fun movie, but not, like, a piece of art. But as you experience it more
1: and more, you have the truest sense of, of the art it is. Which is total horseshit. Like, I mean, I can totally imagine, like, 31-year-old Roger Ebert being like, hmm, this is is not for me. This is for a lower-class individual. Um, He admits that in his later great movies reviews. But that's the thing. So even if you really want to... Even if you just want to focus on its flaws, okay? Even if you're just obsessed with saying, like, you know, this is wrong and this is wrong and this doesn't work and this is ridiculous and blah, 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 blah. It's still awesome. It's still so much fun. It's like the most fun two hours and 47 minutes you're going to have at the movies. If you were asking me which two hour and 40 minute movie you should see, like rent the good, the bad and the ugly, or go see once upon a time in Hollywood, I would say rent the good, the bad and the ugly. Like you will feel so much better about yourself and your life. If you spend two hours and 47 minutes with these people, as opposed to, you know, Rick and Cliff. And I like that movie, but like this movie is, is significant. Like, most movies don't, a lot of movies that you love don't happen unless this movie happens. You know what I mean? Which, when you're watching it, at some point, you're just kind of like, well, this is kind of a parody of itself, isn't it? But you just have to realize that, like, they did it first. Yeah. You're just, like, you're, it's a reflection of every other movie you've seen that does it's all like the seeing, stuff that this like does. It's like seeing
0: Airplane and saying Airplane's a parody of Scary Movie too. But, like, to the end degree.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah I mean I got no complaints I love this movie
0: yeah it's great I can cut
1: like 10 minutes off of it some, some places but you know what but, but where, I mean, where would you cut them? Because every scene that you would think that you would want to cut, like, you know, when they're in the monastery, that scene, that stuff takes forever. Oh,
0: I take like a millisecond or two off of establishing shots here and there. I, guess. Oh, I love the establishing shots.
1: I love my favorite establishing
0: shots. I shot. did it, like Brokeback Mountain levels of, of establishing shots. Yeah. Jesus Christ. My favorite, Ang Lee.
1: My favorite shot in this We've movie. We've talked about
0: that before, right? Yeah, many times. Like, this is a good contrast to <laughs> Brokeback Mountain of like, these are good establishing long shots. Brokeback Mountain. We don't need seven establishing long shots. But they're
1: doing two different things. No, they are. This movie is doing it to show space, like you said. That movie is doing it for emotional reasons, to to establish establish an atmosphere and establish a tone. So, yeah. But then
0: it continues on after it's established that tone when it doesn't need to do it anymore.
1: Well, there's like a long – so, I mean, every establishing shot of the mountains I've I've kind of decided, especially coupled with the score – is I think representative of a longing, especially because that's where they started. Wait, I can't remember that square. Oh, it. it is it, like, it? Plaguing, Yeah, oh, God. I I wrote a song based off of it. Um, it's uh, it's it's representative of something. You know what I mean? This isn't necessarily representative of anything. It's just setting up where the hell, where in this weird space and time you this are. Mythical land yeah. is not the American West. No, that, but something else. But it is the American West in a way, yeah. so I don't know.
0: It's probably more represent, like representative of what the American West is than the Westerns that preceded it. And that's why, you know, after this is created, they each try to get the nihilistic Western. And some people succeed, um, some directors succeed, and one of those directors we'll be talking about in my Top 50, uh-huh. who I think kind of takes what Leone, the groundwork of Leone creates and just explicates on it. To, to the nth degree, but, um, well, yeah, he
1: just pushes the boundaries of, of uh, the overall feeling that is permeating throughout, you know, these three movies. Um, but oh, yeah. yeah,
0: there it is. We're, we're doing outro. Is uh, I don't think we have separating, to do it. So yeah, we're I guess two. So um, we'll be we'll, right back. We'll
1: be right back, in uh. With, a, with another new, new movie, movie to talk about and, and my number 50 yeah. so we'll see you in a little bit